Welcome back to The Re-Education. Today's show is just a monologue and one that is very much on the news. Today I'm looking at the implications of Elon Musk's first days as the new chief twit as the owner of Twitter. I feel like, um, Ben, one of the things that we've seen when other people have not taken over big media companies but started their own niche media companies on this issue of free speech and not doing content moderation and it being a wide open Wild West, and that's the point of it, is that pretty quickly we get lots of ISIS beheading videos and you know, child pornography and, you know, eating disorder dysmorphia photos and other things that um, in some cases are are illegal um, and in other cases make the site, make the use of the site impossible um, for normal humans with normal gag reflexes. We just heard from Rachel Maddow back in April when she still had a regular show and the news first broke that it looked like Elon Musk was about to purchase Twitter. Her point here is one that many progressives are making today on Musk's first and second day as the new CEO. Basically, it goes like this. There's no such thing as a totally unfettered free speech platform on the internet. Even 4chan has rules. Everyone has a line. And that is true as far as it goes. But this argument that even Elon Musk will have to impose some rules of content moderation is also a straw man. The reason is because the serious criticism of Twitter today and other social media companies was never that no content should be moderated. Of course, some should. Rather, it was that content moderation should be neutral, politically speaking, and not skewed to censor legitimate debate. To demonstrate this point, consider the Babylon Bee, a right-leaning parody site that earlier this year gave its Man of the Year award to Rachel Levine, the transgender HHS, that's Health and Human Services, Assistant Secretary. Here is the Bee's CEO, Seth Dillon, explaining what happened next to Fox News. Yeah, I mean, well, we just got locked out. We got notified that we were locked out last night. We get an email that says uh, that we violated the rules for hateful conduct. Um, and they cited a specific article of ours. We were doing a, a satirical take on, um, you know, the US, USA Today recently naming uh, Rachel Levine, a transgender individual, um, as uh, one of their picks for women of the year. So we did the satirical take on this, and, and we named uh, Rachel Levine as our pick for man of the year. Um, and Twitter didn't like that very much. So uh, we ran afoul of their hateful conduct policy, and they basically notified us. They said, look, you know, you're your account's not suspended. Um, you just need to unlock it. And you can unlock it by deleting that tweet. And we're like, well, wait a minute. Um, you know, deleting that tweet requires that we uh, agree that we have uh, violated the hateful conduct policy. And we don't agree with that. Uh, we don't believe that speaking the truth is hate speech. Now, you may think the joke isn't funny. I don't think the joke is particularly funny. You may even think it's offensive to deliberately misgender a senior government official. Perhaps it is. But the notion that this is hate speech that must be banned for the safety of Dr. Levine or other transgender Twitter users is a very dangerous idea because it is imposing a norm in the absence of consensus. In 2022, there is no consensus about whether one's biological sex is independent of one's gender. 
But Twitter has sought to create and enforce such a consensus without the necessary work of persuading a majority of people of the merits of the new position. That is one of the many great benefits of free speech, because as opposed to unfree societies, free societies will evolve their mores and what is acceptable, their norms, organically and by testing propositions through debate. This means that when we do arrive at a new kind of norm, such as the norm that has existed now for probably 30 or 40 years in our society, that interracial marriage is perfectly fine, that when we do get there, even though it was a just position to take that interracial marriage was just fine 150 years ago when you could you know, be arrested for that kind of thing, it means that they are more enduring because ultimately it had to go through a process where there was enough buy-in that that became sort of this new norm. Now, it's fair to point out that Twitter is a private company, and many people have said this, <laughs> as I've complained about some of these recent moves in the last few years, and it can make whatever rules it wishes for the users on the platform. Well, you know what? I agree. And apparently, so does Elon Musk. Well, good morning, George. Yeah, it's still unclear what Twitter under Elon Musk will look like, but he's already shaking things up. And now that it's no longer a publicly traded company, he'll have no shareholders to answer to, which means he can run the company how he wants. This morning, Elon Musk celebrating his new ownership of Twitter with a tweet saying the bird is freed. A source telling ABC News that Musk's first move immediately firing several top executives, including the CEO Parag Agrawal and CFO Ned Segal, after closing a deal originally valued at $44 billion. I think it was very clear that Elon wanted to shake up the leadership of Twitter. He singled out some of the executives that he fired on Thursday in the past and said, you know, that he had problems with specific decisions that they had made. Decisions like banning former President Trump from the platform after allegedly inciting violence during the January 6th insurrection. In a statement tweeted to advertisers, Musk says the reason he acquired Twitter is to have a common digital town square, but saying Twitter obviously cannot become a free-for-all hellscape where anything can be said with no consequences. Twitter has struggled for years to actually get control of some of the worst things that happen on its platform. And so the big question is, how can you expect, as Elon Musk, to cut back on moderation or cut down staff and not have this problem just get worse? That last voice that you heard was Ivan Shear, an editor-at-large at CNET, an important publication when it comes to covering the tech industry. And I have to say that I think he has framed this issue poorly. What do I mean? Well, if you look at social media platforms before 2016, it's true that it was a kind of free-for-all hellscape. I mean, there were always content moderation rules, which made it very clear. I mean, you couldn't tweet porn or child nudes, but largely doxing was allowed for a long period of time. ISIS, or the Islamic State, got its start in this period by recruiting loners and losers on platforms like Twitter. When ISIS began its reign of terror, you can actually find ISIS Twitter accounts that proudly claimed to be affiliated with the new caliphate. And you also have to remember that in the first part of the 2010s, everybody was very excited about the Arab Spring, which was driven by social media. And it was seen as sort of a good thing to have more social media. And then some things began to happen, not just ISIS using these platforms. In 2016, LaRosi Abala, a French jihadist, even live-streamed the aftermath of his murder of a French police captain. 
So it was around 2016 that things really did begin to change. At first, these were sensible reforms to address the abuse of the platform by real terrorist groups like ISIS. Then, after Donald Trump won the election that year, Democrats turned on social media platforms and blamed them for allowing Russian intelligence officers to create fake accounts and spread disinformation about the election. We all know this story because I've covered these issues before on the re-education, both in terms of the Russian meddling in Moscow's history of political warfare. That is the Wilderness of Mirrors episode with the great Peter Savodnik. And also my episode on the anti-disinformation history with uh, Christine Rosen of Commentary, another great guest. But it's after Trump's election that we begin to see the Democratic Party, which traditionally had been, for a long time at least, the party that cared about free speech and civil liberties. At least that's what it was sort of in that post-Kennedy era, the 1960s. It wasn't always that way. The Demo Woodrow Wilson, president, go listen to Jonah Goldberg's podcast on that, was a horrible abuser of civil liberties. And he was, of course, a Democrat. But anyway, modern Democrats until fairly recently had been the party of civil liberties. That's why people like Glenn Greenwald, who are now, you know, incredible critics of the Democrats, but for a long time he was sort of associated with the left and was much more comfortable with the Democratic Party 10 years ago. Anyway, in this role, the Democrats began to pressure social media companies to take a more active role in combating foreign disinformation. At first, some of the leaders of these platforms, like Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, now known as Meta, and Jack Dorsey, the former CEO of Twitter, resisted the pressure in part. Both platforms did their own audits of Russian fakery and cooperated with the Senate investigation. But Zuckerberg in particular, until about 2018, 2019 or so, to a certain extent Dorsey as well, they warned that too much content moderation was a no-win proposition for these platforms who would be seen as taking a side in a political debate, which really did run against their interests and I believe still does. Anyway, while this makes sense for the founders and corporate leaders of the social media companies who benefited from an adherence to free speech and the confidence that these platforms could become kind of new town halls where Americans could come together and debate. The problem was not just the pressure from the outside from sort of the professional Democratic Party activists. It was also coming from inside the House because many of these in-demand engineers and designers that all of Silicon Valley is competing over as they graduate, you know, they recruit them out of college, did not believe really in the value of free speech. In some ways, maybe this is generational, but at least the elites who were kind of going into the market to try to, you know, take the kind of jobs that, I don't know, make Twitter and Facebook and, you know, all these other sites work, they thought that millions of Americans were easily fooled. They were tricked by fake news and disinformation to support what progressives believed was a new kind of fascism. Also, a lot of these folks believed that some speech, like misgendering trans people or more traditional kinds of racism, was itself a form of violence. And then after the COVID pandemic in 2020, the platforms began to work even more closely with the federal government to weed out even more disinformation, this time about COVID's origins or the efficacy of the vaccine or what would happen if you got the coronavirus. And in the run-up to the 2020 election, the platforms also coordinated very closely with the federal government, particularly the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security, to identify and quarantine foreign disinformation aimed at the election. Some of this was a sort of sense of guilt that more was not done in 2016 to deal with the Russian hack of the Democrats in the run-up to the 2016 election. Here is Mark Zuckerberg acknowledging this back and forth in an interview with Joe Rogan. How do you guys handle things when they're a, a big news item that's controversial? 
like there was a lot of attention on Twitter during the election because of the Hunter Biden laptop story. The New York Post. Yeah, we had that too. Yeah, so you guys censored that as well? So we took a different path than Twitter. Um, I mean, basically the background here is the FBI, I think, basically came to us, uh, some some folks on our team, and was like, hey, um, just so you know, like, you should be on high alert. There was, we we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of, of, um, uh, uh, that's similar to that. So just be vigilant. Now, today we know that all of the warnings about the Hunter Biden laptop were a smokescreen and not based on real evidence. They, if you remember, there were the former national security officials who said it looked like it was Russian disinformation. This was certainly the message that the FBI officials would whisper anonymously to members of the press and the big tech companies and to members of Congress. And it turns out that Hunter's laptop, not only authentic, but it appears at least to be a factor into an ongoing investigation into Hunter Biden himself. So that was a real problem. And I think it correctly kind of shook a lot of confidence in the FBI as well. In 2021, Twitter's former CEO, Jack Dorsey, said publicly that his company's decision to block distribution of the New York Post story that broke the Hunter Biden laptop was a mistake. Here, here he is in front of Congress in that year. Yeah, we, we made a total mistake with New York Post. We, we corrected that within 24 hours. It was, not, it was not to do with the content. It was to do with a hacked materials policy. We had an incorrect interpretation. Um, we, we don't write policy according to any particular political leaning. If we find any of it, we write it out. Now, Dorsey here is saying the decision was because of a Twitter policy at the time on hacked material. And there are a couple problems with this, which is that as the social media companies and Twitter in particular developed more and more rules for what content they would allow and what content they wouldn't allow, it became a little bit like a kind of Chinese you know, restaurant menu where you could pick from one column or another column to get the kind of outcome that you wanted. And this stuff was never really enforced consistently. As an example, consider the fact that you know, if this was really the issue with the Hunter Biden laptop story, that it was hacked material that was the problem, well, then where was the content moderation police when the New York Times ran its extensive investigation into Donald Trump's tax returns? That clearly was a kind of hacked material. It raises another question. I mean, had this sort of thing been around, say, in 1970, when the Pentagon Papers were leaked to the New York Times and later the Washington Post? I mean, would if there was social media back then, would they have said, we can't allow you to distribute it because this was stolen material? Give me a break. Sometimes journalists will have to rely on impure sources to get good information. It's up to the journalist to verify that information. But, you know, there were lots of very good stories that came out of the WikiLeaks leaks of 2010 of all the State Department cables. And, you know, you can disagree with how Julian Assange's organization got hold of those kinds of things, but you cannot deny that there was real news value in that material. And this is why I began this monologue talking about neutrality. I don't think there should be no rules. That's an illegitimate position in my view. But there should be consistent rules. And on Twitter in particular, there appear to be two sets of rules. For example, Kanye's account was recently frozen because of his anti-Semitic tweets. We recently covered it in the episode In for Kanye, In for Pound. I really recommend it. But the point here is that the Twitter account for the supreme leader of Iran, a far more consequential anti-Semite than Kanye West, 
remains up and has not been throttled or anything like that. So if you're Ayatollah Khamenei, you can say all kinds of terrible things about wanting to wipe Israel off the map. But if you're Kanye West, you know, it's one strike and you're out. My view, by the way, is just to be clear, is that both accounts should be allowed to stay up. That's not the point. My point is that you can't really have one without the other. Okay. The final problem is that social media in the last three years in particular, I'd say, has had the itchiest of trigger fingers when it comes to censorship. Why did Twitter and Facebook target users, for example, who speculated that the Wuhan biological labs may have been the source for the COVID-19 virus? Because that's looking more and more like the true story here. And yet for the first year and a half of the pandemic, saying that could get you kicked off of Twitter or at least have to have, you know, in a situation where you were forced to erase the tweet like the Babylon Bee was asked to do. And there are plenty of other examples like this. And I have to say, this entire practice of like wanting to find the wrong thing or the disinformation or whatever you want to call it, it reveals a kind of arrogance from the knowledge elites in our society that for the content moderator at Twitter or Facebook or Snapchat or wherever has access to hidden truths that the rest of us couldn't possibly understand. I have news for everybody here. This is exactly the way that the Soviet nomenclatura would justify its existence. The same kind of idea. There's certain things that elites in the Soviet Union could understand that the regular common plebes, of course, could not. And I have to tell you, the enduring lesson of the nomenclatura, or any time you have this kind of what I call epistemological arrogance, is that the end result is that it makes everyone dumber. All right? Show your work. Explain why you believe this is true. Hash it out. Allow these propositions to be tested. And paradoxically, I should say that the itchy kind of censor trigger fingers of the social media companies also reveal a kind of terror and fear and vulnerability because it's basically acknowledging that if you encounter views or individuals who challenge certain orthodoxies, then, you know, there will be great harm that is done to people. And, you know, why would you bother banning a user who dissents from an expert consensus on vaccines or COVID's origins or anything like that, unless you really believe that you couldn't handle the dissent or answer the dissent with more arguments and evidence from your of your own? So it's, on the one hand, an incredible arrogance, but on the other hand, it shows a kind of lack of confidence that certain kinds of precepts or, you know, views about, you know, whatever it is, the origin of COVID or whatever, cannot withstand truly free debate. This finally brings us to the sticky matter of the last president. On Thursday, Elon Musk's first day on the job, word leaked out that he had already fired most of the senior executives. And perhaps the most important one on that list was Vijaya Gade. And that's the Twitter general counsel who had made the decision to enforce that lifetime ban on Donald Trump. When Trump was initially banned nearly two years ago, it seemed somewhat reasonable that you would ban him for like a, like a period of time because you, you remember that was a crazy situation. I live in Washington. The city was like on a military lockdown. And we all know what happened. I mean, this was right after January 6th, and that's when his supporters, at his urging, breached the Capitol during the certification of the election that he lost, but insisted that he'd really won, and his followers zealously agreed, and many of them rioted inside the Capitol. It was an international embarrassment. It was ugly. 
And, you know, I disagree with liberals who I think are hyperbolic about this. I don't think it's like 9-11, the Kennedy assassination. I think it's really, really bad that there is a major political figure in this country that will not accept the results of elections that he loses. I do think it's a danger. And so I understand that when we were worried that there might be more violence from Trump supporters or something like that, you maybe take a time out for the remainder of his presidency. But a lifetime ban, I think, is a real problem. And I think it was a mistake to make it a permanent decision. By the way, I'm not alone on this. The heroic Russian dissident, Alexei Navalny, who now is in a Russian prison, tweeted at the time that he thought Trump's ban was unacceptable, his words. And let me quote him here. Don't tell me he was banned for violating Twitter rules, Navalny tweeted. I get death threats here every day for many years, and Twitter doesn't ban anyone. Not that I ask for it. End of quote. Angela Merkel, the former German chancellor and no fan of Donald Trump, actually agreed with Navalny. Her spokesman at the time said that she thought the ban violated a commitment to freedom of opinion. Another person who agrees with Navalny and Merkel, we know, is Elon Musk, because he has said so, that he believed that the ban on Donald Trump was a mistake. Now, I anticipate a back, I anticipate a kind of response to this. Well, it goes like this. We are already seeing the usual suspects will say, the Republic cannot afford to have the orange menace back on Twitter when the survival of our Republic is at stake. I have heard it for six years in some form or another. And for six years, the resistance to Trump has justified everything from social media censorship to the FBI's abuse of its surveillance authorities in the name of stopping the 45th president. And, you know, for every old norm violated to preserve a new norm, the other side recalibrates. And it's something that I think the resistance left doesn't appreciate, that when they do things that normally they would not do in the context of a kind of, you know, political dispute, Trump supporters see that and then they themselves become more emboldened in the other direction. And it is a road to civil war if we keep going down it. So Elon Musk, with his billions, has an opportunity to reset the terms of our digital debate and to restore neutrality to that town square we call Twitter, and maybe to build trust again for the half of the country that I think has correctly deduced that the rules have been rigged against them. So for that, I wish Mr. Musk well. I'm with Shaquille O'Neal on this. I look forward to seeing what he does as well. I'm not claiming here that Elon Musk is the uh, some sort of savior. He's just a person, but I think he's a very talented entrepreneur, and we will see, and I think his intentions are good. As for the delicate souls dreading the return of the riffraff to Twitter, as for the Twitter senior executives who think all of this is so terribly unfair and that Elon Musk is a monster, well, I'm going to give the last word to Demi Lovato. Sorry. Not sorry. Not payback is a bad bitch and baby, I'm the baddest. You fuck him with a savage. Can't have this, can't have this. And it'd be nice of me to take it easy on ya, but nah. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. 
It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing. Mm-hmm.